Good evening. I thought myself turning it on this morning, and it didn't, and now tonight it's not coming on. So we'll leave that for now, and I'd rather be down there with you, but we'll make this work anyway, especially since it's a Bible class. So um, hope that you'll still comment. If you have a comment to make, I know that will seem ex- exceedingly strange with me standing up here if you make a comment, but we can forego the strangeness of it if need be. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8, and uh, we'll spend some time again in Matthew chapters 8 and 9 tonight. Uh, Hopefully we will finish up uh, our portion of Matthew chapter 8. I know that we have visitors with us, and so we're grateful that you're here. Maybe we have some who are here tonight that weren't here when we started class back last week, so if you'll allow me just just a moment of explanation. Um, That is that I'm going to be teaching on Sunday nights through the month of June, and then um, Brennan will, will cover the month of July, and then David B. Jones will cover the month of August. And so rather than trying to, to mix our thoughts, everyone was just left to their own for their individual month. And so I tried to think about what we could study that would be consistent and yet not try to cover a, a really big chunk of Scripture or an overwhelming subject. And so I, I centered on Matthew chapters 8 and 9 Uh, for our discussion, and I'll explain in a moment uh, why that is the case. Uh, If you were here last week, though, um, I'll go ahead and just ask you, do you remember what we called the Gospel of Matthew? We had a a, a title or a subtitle that we gave to it. The Royal Gospel. Gospel. Somebody is going to talk to me. Great. It is the Royal Gospel. Now, does anybody remember why we called it that? What's the purpose? What's, What's the reasoning? What kind of words are used in Matthew that are not used maybe as predominantly in other gospel accounts. King, Lord, kingdom, even the designation son of man, you might remember we tied to Daniel 7, 13 and 14, that he was called the son of man when he returned to the ancient of days and received his kingdom. And so we have this, this, this flavor. In fact, I think a third of the references to kingdom in all the New Testament are found in the book of Matthew. And so it absolutely is a, a royal gospel. And so... Um, what Matthew does in his gospel is, is, is he introduces Jesus as, as the qualified king, the one who has the right to ascend to David's throne and sit on it. And so we mentioned last week that for the first nine chapters, Matthew is revealing the what of Jesus. Now, there may be three or four different words you could put here. The authority, we'll get to that in just a moment, especially as it comes to chapters 8 and 9. I believe he's revealing the resume. Of Jesus, He's building for us why Jesus is qualified. And if you'll remember, we won't go back all the way through it, but in, in all the chapters leading up to chapters 8 and 9, there, there's at least one element of the majesty and kingship of Jesus that's highlighted. Whether it's his genealogy or it's his, his threat to the throne of Herod, whether it is the announcement that, that, that he, would, he would be king by, by John or the gifts that were brought to him in chapter 4, We find God giving his approval to baptism. We find his enemy in Satan. We understand his his, uh, message or his manifesto in the Sermon on the Mount. Then his authority. And that's where we centered our our focus. Matthew ends the, the narrative portion of the Sermon on the Mount by telling us that they marveled because he taught them as one having authority. If you're going to be a king, that's what you're going to need, Right? You can have subjects and land and and riches and wealth and battle plans and armies, but if you don't command authority, you'll never be successful when you sit on the throne. 
And so what I believe happens in the Gospel of Matthew is that, that you have this introduction of this thought, this, this authority, and then as the, the chapters behind it unfold, chapters 8 and 9, you have individual examples of that authority in certain region, in certain areas, in certain situations. Now, just so that we have a full picture of what we're talking about here, what I also think Matthew does is after chapter 9, once the resume is complete and the body of work's been laid out, that Jesus sends the, the 12 on the limited commission, and we find in Luke's account perhaps 70, and maybe those were two different instances, we're not sure, but he sends them out to preach this message and the coming kingdom and him as king, and people begin to react. Remember, chapter 11, chapter 12, chapter 14, chapter 15, they have all manner of reactions to this message until you get to the point where Peter says, you're the Christ, Son, living God. And Jesus basically says, listen, that's what I've been trying to tell you. That's what Matthew's been revealing to you. That, that's been the, the credentials, the resume's been complete. And from that moment forward, Jesus begins his descent literally and emotionally back down to Jerusalem to die that he might receive his kingdom. And so these first nine chapters then are very, very important to establishing the qualifications of Jesus to sit on David's throne. And the last two of these chapters are all about his authority. Now, the word authority is not used over and over again in Matthew chapters 8 and 9. There's another word that's used. Anybody remember what that word is? It's the word power. They marvel at his power. They marvel at his power. And so as these these, um, particular miracles begin to unfold, because that's what chapters 8 and 9 are. I told you last week, if we get through all the miracles by by the fourth week of class, we'll go back and look at a couple of other sections of chapter 8 and 9, because not every account in 8 and 9 are miracles. There are some discussion accounts, some reaction accounts, even as the miracles are unfolding, And they're pretty important. But if we don't get anything else done for the next three weeks, we want to at least highlight the the, the miracles themselves, the things that happen, the lessons that we can learn from them. And so we looked at the first lesson. In each of these, we talked about something that Jesus had the power over. What's the first miracle of Matthew chapter 8? The healing of the leper. Okay? And it proved that Jesus had power over, does anybody remember, maybe if you're taking notes, despair. Now, just recap purposes. What was so desperate about a leper's situation? He was going to die. And there was no hope. Why? He was despaired because he was all alone and there was no cure for what ailed him unless God were to be the one who did him. We spent a lot of time talking about the power of God and how that represented or or identified Jesus as the Messiah because when John later questioned whether or not Jesus was the one, the answer sent back was, you go go tell John that the blind see and that the lepers are healed. That's, That's a sign of Messiah coming. Okay, So he's qualified because he has power over despair. And obviously any situation in our life that seems desperate and in and, and, and despair, Jesus has an answer for that. He has the authority and power over that to change the course of our lives and, and make us people who have hope. The second miracle was what? Okay? Power over distance, but what was the story? The centurion servant. Okay, so you have the centurion servant healed. And he had power over the distance uh, that was there. Now, our next miracle is going to be found 
in verses 14 through 17, and that is the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. Now, you can make all the jokes you want as to whether or not the Lord did Peter a favor or didn't do Peter a favor because he let his mother-in-law live. I don't know why this unique and strange connection is found in this intimate moment in Peter's life, but it's not to create jokes. It's to show the power of Jesus over all disease. In fact, the story is pretty simple. Um, We did this last week with a couple of sections, and just to keep us involved, someone, if you don't mind, read verses 14 and 15 of Matthew chapter 8. All right, one of the more simple stories in all the New Testament about miracles, right? We don't find a, a great speech. We don't find a, a great problem. We, we find a, a lady sick with a fever. There, there are situations that are more desperate. There are situations that, that call for more, more intense focus that, that affect more people. But what I find interesting is based on that, The Bible then says in verse 16 that when evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed and cast out spirits with a word, and he healed those who were ill. This was a prelude to everything else that Jesus did. We, We sort of overlook these summary miracle accounts in the life of Jesus with just a wave of the hand. Do you see how much power is in verse 16? That just one random evening in Capernaum that Jesus is brought all manner of disease and demon-possessed and with a word heals them all. I may have mentioned this last week, but, but I believe if you read those summary statements in the Gospels that Jesus would go into these small villages and heal the sick and they would bring him all of their sick and all of their disease, that there might have been villages in Palestine in the first century that were actually sickness-free. In a lot of these villages, you wouldn't have had more than, more than 50 people living there, more than 100 people living there. And, and you think of a, of a village of 100 people, and they bring all of their sick, and Jesus heals all of them. There's no more disease there, at least for a time. Yes, sir. Absolutely. And I think Matthew sort of takes off of that in verse 16 when he says that he did this by a word. He, he cast out demons. Well, there are a lot of things. I'm going to get back to Peter's mother-in-law. I haven't totally left her, her story yet. But absolutely, it is immediate. And since we're there, um, people who are healed serve. There, there is a responsibility that comes with blessing. We don't take and take and take from Christianity and take and take and take from the grace of our Lord and then sit down with it. We are are saved to serve, right? We're healed to serve in our spirit and our soul because we've been forgiven. And she illustrates that to us. It also helps us appreciate, I I sort of said a couple of things intending to come back and I didn't, but we see this random woman in this random house on a random day. But women are pretty important to the home, aren't they? It would seem like that that there were some things left undone because she was sick. And Jesus appreciated that. It wasn't just about saving the the, the nobleman or or saving the the, the one who's who's in charge and authority and power, the one who has great potential to, to change the world. 
Jesus cared about individual families, individual homes, and, and individual relationships. This woman needed healing because her family was, was the needs that were not being met in the current situation. And Jesus touched her and showed that power over disease. And Matthew uses that to illustrate the great power he had. In fact, if you were to put Mark's account and Luke's account with this account, you're going to find that her fever was, was high, according to Luke's account, or great. The ASV says that she was holding with a fever. So, so not just that she was sick. We, we've all tried to distinguish, right? Our children come to us, I'm sick. Well, how, just how sick are you? Well, I've got a fever. Well, well how high is it? This was a woman who, who couldn't, it would seem like, couldn't raise her head up, couldn't get up out of bed. Everything that she wanted to do was put aside because of this fever that she had. And she was unable to fulfill the function in the home that she would have liked to and that she needed to do. You also read Luke's account, you're going to find out this took place on the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day had become, other than a day of rest and, and also a day of, of synagogue visiting, which Jesus does in Luke chapter 4, it became a day of feasting. Now, I honestly don't know how they got around all of the laws preventing, pre- preventing them from cooking and traveling and doing all the things they were prevented from doing in, 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 according to Sabbath law, but they found their way around it somewhat, and they were able to feast. And so it might have been... Like in the times past in our country when you would break from Sunday worship and you would go home and expect to find full spread of Sunday meal there on the table that, that, that mom or grandmother or, or aunts and uncles or moms and dads have been up cooking since early morning or since yesterday and that meal was a, a big meal and maybe Sabbath was like that in Peter's house. and Maybe Peter's mother-in-law was responsible for that, but there was something missing in their lives because she was sick. Jesus didn't just care about the big moments and about the big things. In fact, the intimacy of it is that he touched her. Remember, we highlighted that with the leper, the personal connection with the one that, that, he, that he decided to, to, to heal on, on this occasion. She was, uh, she was thankful, and in response to that, she got up and she served them. Um, just to make a quick connection, and we'll move on to the next next. Uh, miracle section if there's not any comments but the first of those healed was a leper the second was a servant and the third was a woman do you know that there was a common prayer among jewish men it said that they would pray every day they would get up and thank god that they were not a slave a gentile or a woman i'm not advocating the prayer i'm telling you what they prayed But imagine Jesus in the opening sections of this miracle account going to the three maybe most overlooked and undervalued in Jewish society. Because you know, a king qualified to rule is a king who cares about every subject and cares about every need and cares about every person. And Jesus makes that known here by healing Peter's mother-in-law. Any questions or comments? Uh, a very, very short miracle, perhaps a lot more power to it than we've even given now. A- anything else? All right. Number two, and then we'll look at three of these tonight as we have uh, opportunity, and then, then we'll close. Um, he had power over disaster, the calming of the storm. Now, if you'll notice in the text, that there's a section of, of the text that's skipped. 18, 18 through 22 is left out of this outline. That's because it's not a miracle section. 
It's an interactive section, and we'll hopefully in week four come back and, and tie some of those loose ends up in those sections. 23 is maybe one of the more memorable miracles in all of Scripture, right? The, the, beginning in 23. The Bible says that when he got into a boat, the disciples followed him, and behold, there rose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being covered with waves, but Jesus himself was asleep. And they said to him, or they came to him and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? And he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. The men were amazed and said, What kind of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? We, we, we tend to be a people who easily, easily highlight the unfaithfulness of God's people through Scripture. It's not, not difficult for us to say, Can't believe those Israelites. And look here again at the disciples. Now, I've told you, I don't believe that Jesus performed all of these miracles one after the other, after the other, after the other. I think Matthew collects those and puts them in one section of his, of his account. It's what I've called the greatest hits uh, of the miracles of Jesus in the book of Matthew. It's not the only miracles that he works, but he works a lot of them in this small section because Matthew's laid out his gospel thematically to help us appreciate this resume, this body of work culminating in the authority, power, and majesty of Jesus in chapters 8 and 9. And so we might get the scene that Jesus has now been performing miracles for an extended period of time. He has healed the leper. He's healed the, the, the centurion's son by a great distance. He has healed Peter's mother-in-law, and he's begun to cast out demons and heal all manner of disease in villages. And now they get into this small storm with Jesus, and they just don't have enough faith to make it through. That's kind of the way we present this on a, on a general basis. I never want to defend faithlessness and always challenge people to deepen their trust even when things don't look well. But this must have been some storm, right? Can we appreciate that? Must have been some storm. There were at least four experienced sailors in that, in that boat. And they were on a sea they were very familiar with. They had been in storms like this numerous times. You probably heard before the, the topography of that region described how you have the, the Sea of Galilee nestled down almost in a bowl and the wind would run down one side of that, that landscape across that sea and, and swirl back over the top and just create this, this windstorm that would produce in a moment a violent, perhaps deadly storm. We find Jesus and his disciples in the midst of all of this. The sea itself was only about, about 400 feet deep, but it was 700 feet below sea level, which caused these great and terrible storms to come up suddenly. Um, not only that, but these men were afraid. They believed themselves to the point of death. Now, I've never used the word before tonight, the word dramatic, in connection with the disciples, but they probably had a little theatrics in them, Right? Especially Peter grandstanding, I will never leave you, I will always fight for you, I will die for you just before he actually denies him. I don't see this as an exaggeration of their fears. This is real to them. They're about to die. And the question that always comes to my mind is, then why were they so afraid if they had the miracle worker in the boat? And why were they so amazed when he actually got the job done? But before we're quick to cast them aside... 
shouldn't we remember that sometimes we face the same type of inconsistencies in our lives? When we don't trust that God can do what he says that he can do, that, that he won't do what he says that he can do, that, that our prayers won't be heard, that, that our money won't be used correctly, that, that we're somehow going to not have what we need, that we're going to be left without? I mean, just think about the fear and panic in our world when everything's shut down because of the coronavirus. What's going to happen to the stock market? What's going to happen to the church? What's going to happen to our jobs? What's going to happen to unemployment? Didn't didn't we stop and shouldn't have we remembered that God's still in control of everything? And that his people will never be without? And his church will never be unproductive? I'm not saying let every, every decision be made in a way that destroys every economy on the earth. But if it happened, God's people would still have. Because the promise of Matthew 6 is still there. He would still be in control. And our faithlessness sometimes comes through. We, we may not be in a boat on the Sea of Galilee with Jesus physically sleeping in the bottom of it. I think there's something greater to this exchange with Jesus and his disciples. I think it's, it's what's found in some of the other accounts, and that is they don't know if Jesus cares. Lord, do you not care that we're perishing? Does it not matter to you? Are you so fixated on healing these people and doing this thing and proving this over here that you've forgotten about the people that are close to you? There's an indictment there. There's a sense of betrayal almost, out of fear. Are you going to let us die? I don't know that they didn't believe he would save them. I'm just not, or that he could save them. I'm just not sure they believed that he would. And so they doubted him. Now, there are some things on the screen. We don't have time to look at all of these things. One is, you have an incomplete picture unless you look at all three of the synoptic gospels. Unless you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you don't have a full picture of what's going on in the scene. And we're not going to take time to read. I would encourage you to find those parallel passages and read through them to see the, the, the whole thing. But the unexplained doubt, the inexplicable doubt, the idea that, that they would doubt, I don't, again, I don't know what the heart of the doubt is. Is it his power? It is, is it his willingness? Something about them is totally different than Jesus. They were going all manner of, 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 of just uncertainty and, and, and instability. What was Jesus doing? He was asleep. Ever had a sleepless night because of a storm in a house on a foundation? They were sleepless. And they were fearful and Jesus was sound asleep. There's a difference between where you put your trust and whose power you're following. What did Jesus make it clear, particularly through the book of John? Why was he on earth? What's that? To seek and to save the lost. Who sent him? The Father did, right? Whose will was he doing? The Father's will. Who was protecting him? Who was taking care of him on the earth? The Father was, right? There was this connection. He had peace. No matter what came along, Because his faith didn't waver. What he wanted for his disciples is the same type of faith. Trust me. Now, I love to point this out, and we don't have time to go there. But you go over to Acts chapter 12, you're going to find Peter 
on the night before he has been sentenced to die. Remember that? He's chained there between two guards. The angel comes to deliver Peter on the night before he dies. And what does the angel have to do? He has to wake him up. In fact, you don't know how sound asleep Peter is? The angel has to strike him in the side to get him awake. Where did he learn that? I think he learned it right here in Matthew chapter 8 when he saw Jesus asleep in the storm. There was a trust level in Peter's life that changed from this moment to sometime before Acts chapter 12. Now, it's the exchange at the end, I think, that's most important. This, 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 this memorable or notable message at the end of, of this account. Did you hear it when we read through it? How amazed were they? And what were they amazed at? Our word is there. That even the wind and the sea do what? Obey him. What's this miracle about? It's about the power of Jesus. It's about the power of Jesus over natural disaster. Over the storms. Now, it should not surprise us that Jesus could command the sea, right? He created it. John chapter 1. He set above it. He fashioned it and formed it. He was the word who in the beginning was God and was with God. And that all things were made by him. It's in him, Colossians chapter 1 and Hebrews chapter 1, that all those things are held together. So if one storm comes along and the creator of the universe says, be still, it shouldn't surprise us that it stops. They were amazed at the authority of Jesus over the seas and the winds and the waves. You think in their minds that they thought, man, where was he the last time we were out here when we were trying to fish and we had to cut it short for fear of our life? We could use this. Little did they know it would be the very thing that would keep them faithful to the Lord for the duration of their ministry in remembering that even the winds and the sea obey him. Power over disaster. Any questions or comments or thoughts on that regard? All right. Quickly, number three tonight. It's power over demons. That is the casting of the demons into the swine. Probably, in my mind, the most perplexing of all the miracles that Jesus ever worked. I don't know because of the components are different. The scenario is different. The interaction is different. Listen, whatever we learn from it, understand this. We learn that Jesus has power to command and to instruct those of the spirit world. He is not just Lord of creation on this earth. He is Lord of everything. The spirit realm and the physical realm. There are a lot of unanswered questions that we don't have time to, to, to unpack tonight. One of those is, where do these demons even come from? Where do they go? I've got my own personal belief about it. But at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter. They, they were sent to torment and to allow the power of God to be seen. Personally, and I've just had this, this Bible study recently with someone, I believe that the demon possession ended when the power to cast them out ended. Because otherwise we would be left with something we couldn't handle or deal with or, 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 or be able to overcome. Their interaction with Jesus is something else that kind of strikes us a little bit unique and strange about this event, right? 
If you open in the scriptures and you read that these demons, uh, this demon-possessed man was in the tombs, and that they cried out when Jesus came to them, what business do we have with each other, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? They knew who Jesus was. They recognized him. They understood his control and power. In fact, everything about this story, everything about this account speaks to the fact that Jesus was the one in charge. Don't miss that. Every bit of it. Can we go into the swine? Will you allow us to? All of that speaks to the authority of Jesus. You don't ask permission to someone who doesn't have authority over you. It's unnecessary. You only ask for the right to do something by someone who has the right to tell you yes or no. Jesus has power over the demons. There's danger that's described in verse 28. You read, again, you read Luke's account and Mark's account of similar events and you find the superhuman strength in men like this. The, the out-of-their-mind scenarios that they're painted. These men are, are, are in the tombs. They're, they're without clothing. They, they can rip chains with their bare hands. This is not just some epileptic seizure that's going on. Now, this is not some just rush of adrenaline. These are men with, the, with a ability beyond normal human ability. Maybe it's time in the story to, to understand that, Matthew says. Because he has power over people and overseas. But he has power over things I can't even explain. He has power over things I've never seen. There's great danger because of this. But the demons themselves, they recognize his deity and they ask to be cast into the swine. Why? I don't know why. Okay, that, that, that's part of the unanswered issues that we have with this and we want to study so intently. We've heard, I just opened the floor, who's heard of a why? Why swine, why demons into the swine, and why is it allowed? Anybody? I'm hoping I'll learn something tonight. Something more. Well, they needed a host. It seems that way, right? It seems like they just can't wander around. And, and, and they, they have to attach somewhere. There some, seems to be some stipulation for their being a, a part of, of creation for a while. They had to have somewhere to be. Okay? I don't know. Let's not get science fiction or, or anything like that and try to prove it. That seems to be part of it. But why swine? Anybody ever heard of a reason why swine? They're unclean. Perhaps these men who, who were, were herding these swine had Jewish blood and were of Jewish descent. This one writer that I read suggested that this, this was able to handle two things in, in, in one issue. You get rid of the, the demon out of the man and you get rid of the swine that the Jewish man shouldn't have had anyway. I don't know. In fact, he likened it to the, the, the burning of records and, 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 and albums back years ago because of the, 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 the influx of, of immorality through rock and roll music. I don't know that I would go that far in connecting the burning of records to the casting out of demons into swine. But there are some things probably in our world we could do without, right? Probably some things we could get rid of. I don't think that's the point. In fact, I don't think the nuances of the story are what we're supposed to see. I think what we're supposed to see is this. That even that which presented strength beyond the comprehension and ability of humanity, Jesus already stood as authority over it. He didn't have to take authority. He didn't have to assume authority. 
He already had it. They approached him. They recognized him. In fact, isn't James going to use this a little later and talk about the devils believing and trembling? Our Lord had power even over the demon world. So much so that they had to ask permission for things that they wanted to do, realizing that if he had forbidden them, forbidden them, that something worse would have happened. Now, there are some unanswered questions. Again, still, what's, what's the time in which they're speaking of? Depending on where you believe the origins of these demons are, if they've been released from a certain holding place for a certain time, there would come a time when they would be holding there again, and they didn't want to go back there now. You also have to, to, to stop and, and wonder if it, what happened to them when they went into the, the pigs and then the pigs went and drowned. Where did they go then? Did they have new hosts? Again, there are more unanswered questions with the, with the nuances of this story than there are answered questions because I don't think that's where our focus should be. It should be on the authority of Jesus' power even over the demonic world. Matthew is building... The resume of Jesus. Five five things just in chapter 8 that Jesus has power over. We'll review those again when we start next week and then we'll launch straight into chapter 9 and look at more areas where Jesus had power and authority. We're building this. Now, if you remember last week, what's the point of building this resume for us? Is this just an academic exercise? Are we, are we just trying to fill the months, month of June with Sunday nights to have something to talk about? Why, why would it matter to us that Jesus has this type of authority and power? He still has it. He still has it. We may not be presented by, by, by demon-possessed pigs or find ourselves in the midst of a storm on the Sea of Galilee or Sabbath meal being delayed because our mother-in-law is sick with a fever those three things will probably never happen to us but we serve a risen savior who has assumed his place on david's throne and he's qualified to sit there and if he can reign and rule in those locations he should be reigning and ruling in our hearts he should be over us and so as we end bible class we transition into offering an invitation if he isn't the lord of your life tonight he needs to be. Your life would be better. In fact, I could not describe to you in, in, in short term how better it would be. But if he isn't reigning and ruling in your life, he should be. Which means that you need to see him and claim him as your Savior. Now, that doesn't happen, as you know, like most of the religious world would have you to think. It's not a prayer you pray or a claim that you make or a declaration that, 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 you, that you shout. It's a process of faithful obedience that you must involve yourself in. It involves belief that Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be and that he has the right to give permission and deny it in life. He has authority. If you believe that, then it will then cause you to repent of the sins that you've committed that are against his authority. Things that he didn't permit, that you've done, things that he required that you fell short in. It also involves your desire to confess the lordship of Jesus, the deity of Jesus, before witnesses. It culminates at the waters of baptism, where in an act of submission, you are immersed in water, where your sins are washed away, 
And you can then finally actually claim Jesus as Lord and Savior. If you haven't done that, you need to. Tonight. Don't let another opportunity, another day, another invitation go by without making that commitment to the Lord. If you've done that, and that does describe the majority of people tonight in this room, the real question comes in, and we'll ask this each week, is do you live like he's Lord? Do you seek his permission and authority for all that you do? Do you care that what you do might hurt his reputation as your king? If you haven't and you don't, there's a likelihood that your actions have hurt him and his cause. And you need to repent of that. The great thing is you have a Savior ready to forgive and a congregation of people who will surround you. And when you make that decision to come home. Whatever your need is, the answer is in Christ. Not simply because he's the giver of good gifts. But because he has authority over all things. If you need to come... And while we stand and sing.